Okay, folks, good morning. Come on in. Just, um, we're going we're gonna to press on. So as everybody is, is settling. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to have a look at the passage. And then Duncan will come and explain it. We're in Exodus, Exodus 3. And we're reading verses 1 through to 10. Exodus 3, verses 1 through to 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord Lord saw that he was turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Amen. Thank you, and let me add to Dave's welcome. Lovely to have you with us today, and please do keep Exodus 3 open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible to hand, those verses are printed in the the diary that you hopefully received on the way in. I think a common uh, criticism that Christians face, um, and in particular, uh, a criticism of the view that Christians have of God, is that too often God seems to be entirely theoretical. What do I mean by that? Um, Christians will, for example, take comfort in verses in the Bible that tell us um, God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in times of trouble. Um, Sorts of verses in the Bible that would say, God is your shield and protector. He will not let your foot slip. We take great comfort from those kind of verses. And yet, the critic would say, look at the world. In fact, never mind the world, look at your own life. Look what's happened to me. Where is this strength and refuge and protection that you speak of? I suppose the criticism is that, is there a, is there a mismatch 
between what we say we believe about God and the reality of what we experience in life. Maybe you're feeling that right now. All sorts of things that you're confident you believe in about God, but is there a mismatch between that and actually your experience of Him? Is there much evidence of it? Does the church really only have nice-sounding sound bites about God to offer people? God's people in the time of Exodus 3 surely felt something like that. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had received God's promise that He would make them into a great nation, that they would be brought into their own land. They would be blessed by God, and God would use them to be a blessing to the whole world. And instead of that, in Exodus 1 and 2, they are enslaved in a foreign land, no freedom, seemingly no blessing, and worst of all, no hope. Where all of those promises that God had made, all of those things they had been taught by their parents through generation and generation about who God is and what He's promised to do, were they all just little theoretical pick-me-ups that they just couldn't stand up to the painful realities of life? Well, at the end of Exodus 2, which we considered last week, we saw that actually the plight of the Israelites hadn't gone unnoticed by God. He had heard their cries for help. He remembered the promises that He'd made. He saw what they were going through, and he knew. But is that where it stops with God? Is that where it stops? Friends, this book of Exodus, this book of the Bible, is one in which God reveals to us what kind of God He is. And it's from chapter 3 onwards that that purpose really comes to the fore. And it speaks to all of us who can see the mess of the world, who can see the mess of our own lives, because we're here shown that God is not some abstract concept. God is not aloof from the mess of the world. No, in Exodus 3, God comes down. And that's so important for us. And hopefully we'll see why. God comes down. How long do you think it takes to study God? How long do you think it takes? Um, Theology is literally the study of God. And you could go to university. uh, There's one near at hand. You could study there for four years and have an honors degree in the subject. An honors degree in the study of God. My question to you is, do you think that would make you therefore an expert on God. Have you studied Him having done that? I should say there's no higher thing you could ever set your mind to than to study God. And when it's done in the right way, there's no more thrilling thing to do. But here's the reality check for us. God is an infinite being. And here we come, human beings with our finite capacity, our limited brains, we come to learn and comprehend something that we could never exhaust. 
We could never exhaust our study of who and what God is. And in fact, it will occupy us for all eternity and we'll never exhaust it. You and I could never be finished searching the Bible to understand a bit more. I mean, I wonder if you've experienced this. Have you? You, you read the Bible and you learn that there is one God. Well, there's something to go and think about. And you read on and you find that there are three persons in one God. Well, now you've really got something to think about. And you learn that when one person in the Godhead does something, the other two are always doing it with him. Go and think about that for a bit longer. And actually, you find that one of the persons in the Trinity took to himself a human nature. Now, you really got something to think about. And we could go on, couldn't we? You will never exhaust what it is to study who God is. Learning about God is a wonderfully stretching thing to do, but there's a huge danger in what I've spoken about here. We must never, ever reduce God to a mere intellectual exercise, because that is one of the most spiritually dangerous things you could ever, ever do. And Moses learns that here. We see in these um, opening verses of Exodus 3 that God is not a curiosity. God is not a curiosity. Moses has gone from being a prince in the palace of Pharaoh to a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And we learn from elsewhere that at this point that we re-encounter Moses He's been doing the shepherding business for 40 years. And in leading his sheep, here he comes to Mount Horeb. The other name in the Bible for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai, which will show up again in the book of Exodus significantly. And it's there that the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. That's how it's put to us in verse 2. Don't get too hung up on the word angel here. We, we tend to think when we see that word angel of a winged creature with a halo, don't we? Um, but the word angel is actually more a description of the function that, um, that is being fulfilled rather than what type of being it is. And so, the word simply means messenger. So, here we're, we're told the messenger of the Lord appeared to Moses. So, you have this messenger from God, but in fact, we find in verse 4 when this messenger of the Lord speaks that the messenger is himself God. You see that? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. It's God who is present there. Um, and it's not hard to see why some think that when you read of this angel of the Lord, which appears several times in the Old Testament, um, what's being described here is God the Son, Jesus Christ before He became human. Um, anyway, we are to see that the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses is the Lord Himself. And look at how He appears, verse 2, He appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, out in the desert, um, it wasn't, I suppose, necessarily unusual for a bush to catch fire dry, hot, tinderbox conditions, as the, as the weathermen like to say, they can cause fires. But there was something different about this, wasn't there? Moses, 
He sees this burning bush, and this is something he's never seen before. The fire was burning, but the bush was not being burned up. So what's kept this fire going? I mean, we, we, we learned from childhood, didn't we, that if you're going to keep a fire burning, you need to supply it with fuel. Well, this fire is not consuming any fuel that Moses can see, so how is the fire still burning? And so, he does what any of us would do, I think, in verse 3. He says, I'm going to go in and have a look at this thing. And this is where God intervenes and speaks to Moses. And this is an important point. We easily skip over this. I mean, just pause for a moment and think, what would have happened if God hadn't spoken? What would have happened if God hadn't spoken? What if Moses had seen this divine appearing on Mount Horeb, but had been given no explanation about what he was seeing? What would he have made of it? I put it to you that he would have had no clue that God was there. He would probably have got too close and been consumed if God hadn't spoken. He would have had no idea that God was calling him to a mission to rescue God's people from Egypt. Let's not miss that, that here we, we do speak about how well God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and that's true, isn't it? But actually, God revealed Himself to Moses not so much in the burning bush, but in the words that He spoke to Moses from the burning bush. It's a necessity for God to speak if God is to make any, if, if, if Moses is to make any sense at all of what He sees. And this is a wonderful thing that's revealed about God from the opening pages of the Bible is He is a God who speaks. He is a God who speaks. And so, the Lord calls out to Moses by name and warns him in verse 5, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And God then identifies Himself, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses is being told that what he first thought innocently would be some curiosity of the natural world to be investigated is not what he first thought it was. No, God is here. And the significance of God's appearing in the flame of fire is partly explained for us because he says that the ground on which Moses now stands is holy ground. Moses, you're going to need to take your shoes off. You know those things that you wear to protect your feet from the muck of the ground? You don't wear them when you stand in my presence. They need to be removed. And it's not that the mountain itself has any special significance. I mean, you could, you could travel there today, I suppose. Some of you may have been. You could go to this very mountain and you don't need to take your shoes off now. Because you see, the reason why this mountain is holy, this ground is holy, is for no other reason than because God is there. And it's because He is holy that that ground is holy. Holiness is a, is a very important word in the Bible, and it's a word that means to be set apart. It's this idea here that, that God is other than us. 
He's not just like one of us. He's set apart from us, other than us. He's holy. It's a term that speaks to God's difference from us in terms of His purity in every conceivable way. And the imagery here is that for God to be holy is not just some passive attribute. It's not, uh, it's not like um, having dark hair or whatever, but actually He burns in His holiness. You see this, this image of this flame that is burning, always burning, this holiness of God actively burning, presumably against anything that would not be holy. There's an unapproachableness to God in His holiness, and that is what Moses understands you see, there's an instinct that kicks in straight away for Moses. In verse 6, what does he do? He hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. Later on in the book of Exodus, Moses will pluck up the courage to ask God to show him his glory. And God replies to him saying, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. It is God, the Holy One, who appears before Moses. And the moment that Moses discovers that, well, it would be crazy for him to continue on with his inspection of the bush, wouldn't it? Can you imagine God reveals that it's him who's there, and Moses says, that's interesting. Um, hang on a minute. How do you do that thing with the bush? God is not some curiosity to be investigated in that way. No, Moses hides from the presence of God because God is transcendently pure and holy and just, and in all of His attributes, He burns like a fire. And how we must, 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 first of all, relate to God in this way, in humility. The presence of God brings with it, for Moses, a heightened sense of his inadequacy to be anywhere near God. And friends, until we've learned this lesson Believe me, we are nowhere with God unless we have learned this lesson. We live in an age when it is very common to face a barrage of random, isolated questions about the Bible, about the faith, about God. They're commonplace. And believe me, questions are good. But oh, we need to be wary of simply turning God into some curiosity something that we simply probe with a barrage of questions. He is not an object to be analyzed. He is, first of all, the supreme being, your creator, the one who is perfect in all that he is, all that he does, and he is to be worshiped first and foremost. And that is the only platform in which we get to study God is from the platform of worship. If we want to look at and analyze God, the place to do that is flat on our faces before Him. Moses gets that. And I believe these verses really do caution us against ever entering into God's presence lightly. 
And you may have seen that there's been some stories from the other side of the Atlantic about seasons of revival breaking out in some places. And usually what is meant by that is that God has in a particular way visited a place with a real sense of His presence and power. Now, I haven't, I haven't got anywhere near enough information to evaluate the specific claims, but here's the general guide on this. On the basis of Scripture, we can surely say this, when God visits in a particular way, when His presence and power are felt, you become more aware of His presence than anyone else's. You become more aware of who He is than anything else. I'm pretty sure that when God visits in that way, we don't tell jokes, we don't get light, things get very heavy. Because when I'm aware of His presence more than anything else, I'm aware of my unworthiness. I'm aware of my guilt before God. My heart will be weighed down with conviction because this being who is other than me has come close. I'll want to cover my face. And this is where knowing God starts. He is not a curiosity. He is Almighty God who burns in His holiness. But why has God shown up in this way? Well, God reveals that in verses 7 and 8, and He confirms what we were told at the end of chapter 2, that He has seen the suffering of His people, He has heard their cry for help, and verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God appears here, and God, who is not a curiosity, reveals that He is a God of deliverance. God is a God of deliverance. Let me initially point out three things for you about this deliverance that God has come down to do. The first is that He, uh, well, that He comes down to deliver. Can't miss that significance, I think. He comes down to deliver. What a precious detail that is. You know, the Bible has a very clear message about where God is in relation to us. And the repeated, uh, possibly most common contrast that is used is that He is high and we are not. So, you would, some phrases that may sound familiar to you. Glory to God in the highest. God is high and lifted up. All glory to the most high God. This is the kind of way that the Bible speaks about God. And it is not so much a, a geography thing as it is how He stands in relation to us. Most high high and lifted up, He is in the highest. And so, when you come here to Exodus 3, what a testimony to God's care and commitment to His people, that in response 
to their harsh treatment, in response to their cries of agony that come to Him, the Most High God says, I have come down to deliver them. He's come down. Second thing to notice is that God has come to deliver them from bondage. Deliver them from bondage. So, God twice calls the Israelites my people in these verses, which is a lovely detail. And it's significant, actually, because at the moment when the Pharaoh of Egypt enslaved the Israelites, Pharaoh was saying, these people belong to me. They are now my property. If anyone wants to do anything with them or take them somewhere, they need my permission. It's as if Pharaoh has tried to abduct God's people And God says, I've come down and I'm going to set them free. He's come down to deliver them from slavery. But thirdly, God commits not only to deliver them from slavery, but He commits to deliver them to a new life. You see that in verse 8. His his commitment doesn't just involve um, removing their shackles and that's it. It doesn't just involve breaking the hand of the Egyptian slave masters. It's so that he might deliver his people to something else. And what is it he says he's going to do? He's going to deliver them, verse 8, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise is that He's going to take them from slavery and take them to a new place where they are not constrained, a place where they are not in bondage, a place of fruitfulness. And that language of milk and honey speaks of natural fruitfulness, a place where where, where fruitfulness is just part of the fabric of the place. And you see that it's a land that is occupied by a number of people groups, and that's going to raise some questions but it will be the Israelites' home. It is their promised land. God says, I'm going to take you out of that, and I'm going to bring you to this. So, God comes down to deliver His people from Egypt, to deliver them to new life in the promised land. These are two important aspects of God's deliverance. This is how God delivers, and it's still how God delivers. Because actually what we see in the book of Exodus is a foreshadowing of the greatest deliverance of all. When God came down to earth from heaven, not in a flaming fire this time, but in the womb of a virgin. Yesterday, uh, the 25th of March, was the Feast of the Annunciation. I bet you never thought we would mark that in this church. Yesterday was the Feast of the Annunciation. Um, We're probably not clear about why anyone would mark that and what it is. Well, the clue is this, that the 25th of March is exactly nine months before Christmas Day. And it marks the visit of the angel Gabriel to Mary telling her that the Messiah would be conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. It marks that this is when God came down to earth from heaven, when that 
when that's that, that, that tiny microscopic life was implanted in the womb of Mary. God came down to deliver us. What kind of deliverance would require that kind of coming down for the Most High God? Well, the greatest of all deliverances. Human beings, without exception, are subject to multiple slave masters. We are enslaved to our sinful nature. Ever since Adam and Eve rejected God, the human race has, has come from the same tree, bound by the need to sin. We find ourselves at times inexplicably compelled to rebel against God. We're therefore bound by the devil who would lead us away from God and seek to destroy us because we bear the image of God. We're enslaved by death, which is the natural end point for every sinner. Sin always leads to death, and there's a sense in which that slave master of death stalks every one of us. What a miserable slavery we find ourselves in. But God has come down to deliver us from all of that, and He's done so in Jesus Christ, who was born without a sinful nature, who lived a life free from sin, and who laid down that sinless life to bear the penalty from God that sinners like you and me deserve. He rose from the dead so that all who come in faith to Him receive deliverance from sin and from death and from judgment. And we do speak about this a lot in church, and we don't apologize for that. We speak about what God has delivered us from, but we probably don't speak nearly enough about what God has delivered us to. And both of these are important, because you see, God's people are not going to be taken out of Egypt and simply left on the other side of the Egyptian border and told to make whatever of it they want. No, He's going to take them to a new life in the promised land. And it is the same too for those who belong to Jesus. The invitation to believe in Him is not just to escape the bad stuff, it is a call to a new life, a life that is blessed by God and that is a blessing to others. Jesus, especially in John's gospel, repeatedly spoke about giving eternal life to those who respond to Him in faith. And in speaking like that, he speaks of, a, of the great hope that he gives, that death that stalks us seemingly will not be the end for the believer in Christ. No, instead he gives them eternal life. It's a term that speaks not just about life that lasts forever, because in some ways that's not always appealing, is it? but actually a life that is eternal, not just in its duration, but in its depth, in its fullness. And we come to understand the reason why that eternal life is the fullest possible life is because it is a life that is joined with Jesus Christ. It is His life in us. And so not just a hope after death, as wonderful as that is, but if you belong to Jesus Christ, eternal life is yours now. It's already started. He gives new life 
by the Holy Spirit, eternal life, which is knowing God, belonging to Jesus, using this new life that God gives to serve Him, to serve others. It is a new life that changes our perspective on just what life is all about. A full life is defined very differently for the Christian. No longer do we think of it primarily, I hope, in terms of health or money or comfortable living or popularity. This is what the world tells us you need to have to have a full life. But the Christian has learned something else, that full life is found somewhere else, somewhere far deeper, somewhere far more reliable. No, the true fullness of life is knowing God through faith in Jesus by the new Spirit-given life within us. This is who we are. And when we know that, we are given a foretaste of the fullness of life that will be ours when we're with Jesus in glory. There is a type of preaching um, usually conducted by preachers in their early to mid-twenties, as I once was, that loves to rail against the things that are wrong in the world. It's a very, it can be a very satisfying thing to do that. Um, but it is to focus on the things we've been delivered from. And it's okay to do that so long as we have the same amount of energy to shout about what God has delivered us to. God has delivered us to new life, not just to complaining and railing against the things we've left behind, but to a new destination. And we want to shout about the abundant, joy-filled, servant-hearted life that Jesus gives us, and He gives it to us on the road to glory where all of those things that would drag us down, all of the, the difficulties and hardships and pains of life will finally be gone forever. But for now, He gives us Himself to walk with us through this life and all of its shadows and pain. God comes down to deliver His people from slavery and to deliver them to a new life with Him. One last thing to observe. I think um, all of what we've considered so far must have been music to Moses' ears, right? Um, we know already from what we've read, Moses um, is burdened by the, the condition in which the Israelites are living. These are his brothers, and his, his clumsy efforts to try and do something about it meant he's been exiled in the wilderness for 40 years. But when God finally appears and says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them, Moses must have thought, oh, at last. But oh, how his heart must have sunk when God said to him in verse 10, I will send you <laughs> to Pharaoh. I will send you to Pharaoh. And we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time that, that Moses' heart really did sink when, Moses said, when God said those words to him. God says, I have heard... I have seen, I will send you. God comes down to deliver, and He does that by sending a deliverer. And here we see God sends a man, a flawed man. And this is the pattern of Israel's history, actually. You probably see it most clearly in the book of Judges, 
you read through Judges and you've kind of got this repeating story that the Israelites are unfaithful, they've become oppressed by their enemies, they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer. And then the whole thing goes round again. God sends lots of deliverers to his people throughout their history. God raises them up like King David, King Solomon, and they were able to deliver for a season. It was always short-lived. When you read those stories, you're kind of left as if you're on a cliffhanger. You're left saying, well, that's, that's unsatisfying to me. There must be a better deliverer to come. And this is what the whole story of the Bible is about, isn't it? It's to lead us to the true deliverer who will come. And that deliverer has come. We don't sit here waiting for another rescuer to come. No, we're here to tell you about Jesus Christ. And this principle that God sends people in His work of deliverance is something that's still going on today. Through the work of Jesus on our behalf, God has delivered us, but that is communicated to us through human beings, through people like you and me. God has done the work of deliverance, and He says to all those who are His, I'll send you. I'm going to deliver a lot more, but I'm going to send you. And like Moses, at times our heart shrinks when we hear that God has put this message of deliverance into our hands. But I suppose we, we stop and think about it. What other message would you rather carry? What other message would you rather live your life for than this wonderful message that God has come down in Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin and deliver us to eternal life in Him? To be servants of the God who comes down to deliver is a dignity we don't deserve. And when we remember that even though He says, I will send you, He still is saying, I have come down to deliver. He doesn't say to Moses, now you work out how to deliver them. God's commitment is that He will do the delivering. And He sends us to declare deliverance in the name of Jesus. What a wonderful testimony to who God is, the Most High. He comes down to deliver. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.